What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 3, Ancient Mesoamerica, Part 2. Last time we discussed the first Mesoamerican civilizations, and had a look at the pre-classical era. We saw the region develop, from the first agricultural societies, through the Olmec, to the Zapotec and the Mistec. Today, we enter the classical era. This is an exciting period in Mesoamerican history with new and vibrant cultures springing up all over the place. Powerful kingdoms will rise and fall, and this will set the stage for the Aztecs. Before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask for some of your opinions on the show. Are you enjoying it? Do you have any suggestions? If so, please let me know. I have some pretty concrete ideas of how I want this show to be, but at the same time, I also want to give my listeners what they want. Feel free to send me an email at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to this on the website, feel free to leave a comment underneath. If you're feeling really kind, you could even leave an iTunes review. So, as I mentioned before, the civilizations we've discussed so far all lived in the pre-classical period. This was an era of cultural formation. As larger and more powerful civilizations started to develop, they started to experiment with different ways of organising societies. A distinct but varied Mesoamerican culture started to emerge, and large cities sprung up all across the region. Soon, however, there would be a new wave of more complex civilizations. Larger, stronger, and more centralised states appeared, and these would often compete with each other, resulting in war. Art and technology reached new pinnacles, as new techniques were discovered. The classical era began around 250 AD, and three or four main centres of power emerged. To the south were the Maya. Now, we won't be dealing with them today. They're going to have their own two episodes dedicated to them. 
In Oaxaca, the Zapotecs continued to flourish, and Monte Alban reached its peak. On the east coast, close to where the Olmecs had been, a new culture, at El Tajin, emerged. It was the Valley of Mexico, however, that was home to possibly the strongest of the new civilizations. Now this is the area that the Aztecs called home. It's also where current-day Mexico City is. Up until now, however, it's played very little role in Mesoamerican history. It's been a bit of a backwater. This is about to change, with the founding of Teotihuacan. There had been a settlement here since around 200 BC, but being built on a swamp, it took a little while to get going. By 450 AD, however, it had grown into a massive city at the head of a huge empire. Its influence spread right across Mesoamerica, possibly as far south as Guatemala. To deal with the marshy terrain, a network of canals had been built which crisscrossed the city. The earth dug up while building these canals was used to create raised beds. These could then be used for agriculture. There is some debate about exactly who built the city. Today, some of the local ethnic groups have been credited. Some people also think it may have been a multi-ethnic society, with no particular group on top. The city was huge. At its peak, it had a population of 125,000. That rivals any of the old world cities at the time. Even today, if you visit the site, you can't help but be impressed by not just the size of the site, but the scale of the buildings. At its centre, it's dominated by the massive Pyramid of the Sun. The people of Teotihuacan lived in semi-communal residences, often shared between a few families. The population got so large that some of these are multi-stories. They resemble today's apartment blocks, something that was unprecedented for the time and area. At its peak, the city covered 20 square kilometres, and it was laid out in a grid pattern. Through its centre ran the Avenue of the Dead, a huge street, 40 metres wide. Certain parts of the city were set aside as the place for foreigners to live. There was a Zapotec neighbourhood, a Maya neighbourhood, and this shows the influence they had over faraway civilizations. These areas were mainly home to traders and diplomats. The people of Teotihuacan had a complex polytheistic religion. They did seem to have one female goddess, however, who was more popular than the rest. She appears in many carvings and murals across the city. It is thought she was a fertility goddess. Human sacrifice was part of their religion, and the priests occupied a special status in society. Interestingly, no bull courts have been found in Teotihuacan. It seems they're the only major civilization in Mesoamerica that did not play the game. A few paintings have been found, however, of some sort of bull game being played, although it doesn't seem to be the one that's played by everyone else. Clearly they played something, but it doesn't seem to have been very important. Bull game aside, Teotihuacan casts a large cultural shadow over all the civilizations that will come after it. If the Olmecs were the mother culture of Mesoamerica, arguably of course, then Teotihuacan was the culture that took it through into adulthood. It created the first true multi-ethnic empire in the region, one that expanded well beyond its own cultural block. The Aztecs believed they owed a great debt to Teotihuacan, and even today it's the most visited historic site in Mexico. Meanwhile, in Oaxaca, this period saw growth for both the Zapotec and the Mixtec. Monte Alban grew in size, but its hegemony was challenged by new cities. While its population increased, and its social institutions got more complex, in terms of actual areas controlled, it contracted as it was challenged by these newcomers. 
It was, however, the only place who could challenge Teotihuacan. A great rivalry developed between these two centres of power. The exact nature between these two cities is disputed. Some historians think that Monte Alban may have been conquered. Others firmly disagree. It may be that they came to some sort of alliance or agreement. This could be for mutual benefit, or it could have been a sign that Monte Alban realised it was the lesser power. If this was the case, while not being conquered, Monte Alban would have come under some degree of influence. This scenario, however, is far from certain. They could have dealt with each other as equals. Zapotec culture and society reached new levels of expression during the classical era. Sculpture and public art increased. Largely it depicted nobles and warriors, as well as religious images. There was an increase in building work as the city expanded. Grand new mansions were built around the central plaza. Households at the time centred around a family head, a sort of patrician. Their house served as a base for the extended family. When people died, they were often buried underneath the house, creating a sort of family cemetery. It is common for archaeologists excavating these houses to find bones from many different generations, all mixed together. Burial evidence from the houses of the nobles has led one archaeologist to suspect that they may have practiced polygamy. They also seem to have buried household pets along with their dead. These Zapotec families were built around one apical ancestor. Everyone who was part of the family group could claim descendants from this one man. These family groups formed a unit, and together they would work hard to improve their social standing. This standing was often determined by the standing of their apical ancestor. Your social status within the group was decided by how close your relation to this apical ancestor was. The patron of the family would be the most direct descendant. It seems this ancestor was almost worshipped, and sometimes the family would hold a ceremony to praise him. It's an interesting social system, and quite different to those we had in Europe. These families were sort of like clubs, but would work together to improve their standing. Everyone was a member of one, and it seemed like it gave some degree of social mobility. While I'm sure there were disputes within these families, it gave everyone an incentive to work together. The Mixtec, meanwhile, were forming new city-states to replace the ones that had collapsed in the pre-classical era. More than a dozen of these have been identified, and it seems like they were locked in constant rivalry. While some victories were won, there was no single city-state that managed to exert its influence over all the others. Mixtec society in the classical era was more rigid, and there was a strong nobility. In terms of gender, though, it does seem to have been fairly equal. Some of the largest graves we found contained females. The Mixtec remained fragmented for centuries. Although they possessed an advanced civilization, they were unable to come together and form one large state like the Zapotec had. Because of this, they will avoid the great collapse that swept across Mesoamerica at the end of the Classical Era. They will remain in the state they are now, pretty much until the Spanish arrive. There is one last culture I want to make you aware of, but due to the lack of information available, I won't go into too much detail. On the east coast, in today's state of Veracruz, the El Tajin civilization developed. This is on the Atlantic side of Mexico, just north of where the Olmecs flourished. The people of this city developed a complex civilization, complete with monumental architecture such as pyramids, sculpture and pottery. These people are shrouded in mystery. Until the 1700s, the Spanish didn't even know that they existed. Their city had been lost to the jungle. To this day, we're still unsure who exactly built it, although there are two main candidates. 
The largest ethnic group in the region today are the Totonac. Linguistically, this group is a complete isolate. This means they're not related to any of the neighbouring ethnic groups. If it was these people who built El Tajin, then, judging by their myths, by the time the Spanish arrived, they were completely unaware of it themselves. At the time, they were living in small rural communities, a far cry from the great city. The other candidates are the Huastec. Now, these people are actually related to the Maya, although they split off and moved north long before the Maya started building their great cities. If it weren't for that fact, they would seem the obvious candidates. It would have been easy for them to bring the city-building techniques they'd seen back home. As it stands, though, if they did build El Tajin, they would have had to have created their society independently. Although they have the same route, thanks to time and distance, culturally they have diverged quite significantly from the Maya. Whoever created the city, the layout and architectural style of El Tajin is unique. One of its main pyramids, for example, is covered in little windows. This is something not found anywhere else in Mesoamerica. Its inhabitants also use some form of concrete. Again, this is unique. Despite the differences, however, they did share some similarities with their Mesoamerican neighbours. Their religion involved human sacrifice, and they also played the ball game. Whoever was behind the Veracruz culture, as it's sometimes known, it seems they were just as advanced, scientifically and culturally, as their neighbours. Their city could clearly rival others, and we think they ruled a large area. I say that, maybe a more accurate statement would be, their culture existed in a large area. We don't know if this was one state, or a collection of several related ones. The city's inhabitants started to build large buildings in around 100 AD. They lasted for a millennium, only seeming to collapse in around 1100 AD. They seem to have avoided the crisis at the end of the classical era that caused so many other civilizations to suffer. Eventually, though, and for unknown reasons, the city collapsed. Now we know next to nothing about these people, but they clearly possess an advanced culture. As I said before, no one even knew they existed until a few hundred years ago. Since its discovery, very little work has been done excavating the site as people focused on their neighbours. If any young archaeologists are listening who are hoping to make a name for themselves, this could be the place to go. I'm sure there are some amazing things there waiting to be uncovered, and there are certainly lots of blanks that need filling in. So these are the main civilizations of the classical era. I'm afraid I've only given a very brief overview, not much more than just who they are, where they were, and a few key details and interesting facts about their societies. Now I apologise for this, I would love to go into more detail. Each one of these cultures is equally fascinating and as important as their more famous neighbours such as the Aztecs. My reasoning for doing so, however, is twofold. First of all, there just isn't that much information. I know I sound like a broken record, I say this a lot, and you'll be hearing it a lot more over the next few episodes, but we just don't know enough. The second reason is, we just have so much to cover in this podcast. I wanted to introduce all these people so you could get an idea of the history before the Spanish arrived, but you could easily do a podcast on Mesoamerica alone. Now that I've introduced the classical era civilizations, I want to talk about their collapse. During the last few centuries of the first millennium AD, civilizations across Mesoamerica started to decline. In different places, this happened at slightly different times, but in general, a pattern emerged. What had once been thriving cities started to decline in population. Eventually, many were completely abandoned. 
In Teotihuacan, this decline started in the 6th century. New small estates in the area started to challenge its dominance. None of these managed to achieve anything near what Teotihuacan had done in its prime. They should be viewed as weak successor states, rather than new powers in their own right. There are several competing theories as to why this happened. Some people think there may have been an invasion from outside, whereas others think it could be due to environmental changes. Archaeological evidence suggests that some sacking did take place. This could support the invasion hypothesis. It appears, though, that most of the buildings which were sacked were those belonging to the elite. It may have been that the damage was not done by outsiders, but by the population of the city itself. It could have been social unrest. If this was the case, this could have happened for a variety of reasons. Social unrest often happens when a society is put under pressure. This pressure can come from many sources. It could have been caused by the threat of invasion, or maybe the economy was starting to collapse. This again could have been due to environmental factors causing food shortages, or it could have been just down to inequality. While these sackings are certainly useful and interesting evidence, they haven't really helped us narrow down the cause of the decline. As we shall see in the next episodes, the Mayan cities were also starting to decline around this time. Most of the larger ones had been abandoned by the 8th and 9th century. It's the same story at Monte Alban as well. The Zapotec had abandoned the city by the year 1000. Whether there was a link between the decline of all these great cities is unknown. It's exceedingly tempting to see a pattern and assume that something must have happened, something that affected all of them. Until we have the evidence, however, to discern specifically what this could have been. Unfortunately, this is just speculation. Another important point is that although these declines all happened at similar times, they were slow, they took place over centuries. The final abandonment of Monte Alban, for example, is separated by generations from that of Teotihuacan. This seems to suggest that there was no great and sudden catastrophe. If these declines happened for environmental reasons, for example, it must have been a gradual and slow change in environment. If something had happened, like an earthquake, or a great volcanic eruption, all these cities would have been abandoned simultaneously and quickly. One historian who has attempted to work out why this decline happened is Arthur Joyce. He focuses specifically on the people of Oaxaca, and in his book Mixtec, Zapotec and Chatinos, he examines their decline. He takes an almost sociological approach to examining history, and he looks specifically at the social structures and social institutions of these people. I have used his book as a source for this and the previous episode, and you may have noticed some observations about social status and class structure slipping in. Joyce is a proponent of the social unrest theory as to why the Oaxacan civilizations collapsed. He believes that social class and growing inequality was at the root of the decline. He argues that there was a growing disconnect between the elites and the working people. He also believes that there was a hardening of the classes and that social mobility was becoming more and more impossible. There was, he says, a contrast between the pre-classical civilizations of Oaxaca and the classical ones which followed them. The earlier ones had been much more egalitarian and this diffused social tensions. To put it basically, the nobility demanded more and more of the ordinary people while giving them less and less in return. Eventually, people were pushed to breaking point and having no stake in society, they decided to destroy it. One piece of evidence he uses to back up his theory can be found in the architecture of classical-era cities. 
The main square in Monte Alban, for example, had originally been a communal public space used by everyone. Later, however, it became gentrified. The noble class built huge mansions around its edges and increasingly used the area for their own private rituals. The city centre and the metaphorical space of religious practice was increasingly being closed off and monopolised by the elites. In Joyce's eyes, religion moved from being a communal thing which bound their society together to being something the elites used to justify their social status. This is an interesting theory, and as far as evidence goes, perhaps one of the best supported. I do not feel qualified to say this is what happened, however, partly because I do not feel I have researched the subject thoroughly enough to really come to any firm conclusions, and partly because, well, there's just not that much evidence to support any theory. This wouldn't, however, be the only place where this had happened. Mike Duncan, who you probably know as the guy who did the History of Rome and is currently doing the Revolutions podcast, has written articles about this. He's currently writing a book on it. He believes that in the late Roman Republic, that is, the generation before Julius Caesar, inequality, class tensions and social unrest were all increasing. Eventually, the social upheaval had undermined the Roman institutions so much that they were discarded. Julius Caesar was able to take power and effectively end the republican system. Now all this might sound familiar from the world outside of history. One of the points I believe Duncan will make in his book is that there are strong parallels between that time in Roman history and today's societies. I believe the book is due to be published sometime next year, and I for one can't wait to read it. To bring it back to Mesoamerica, the point I'm trying to make with this is that the scenario Joyce suggests is possible. These kinds of social tensions have caused problems for societies all around the world and throughout time. Of course, if social unrest did play a part in the decline of classical Mesoamerica, it may not have been the only reason. Often these things are interlinked. One thing might spark the next. Environmental changes or an invasion may have caused famines, which then caused unrest. A decadent elite refusing to share may have been the result of a successful society, or it could equally have been a response to difficult times, again caused by invasion or famine, who knows. Whatever the cause, large cities all over the region were being abandoned. Most culture groups balkanised into much smaller settlements. These had much lower populations, and they were unable to marshal labour in the way that their ancestors had done. Farming became subsistence, and people became more concerned with trying to survive than trying to expand into their neighbours' territories. In some places, this is how it would remain, right up until the Spanish arrived. Now you may have noticed one area missing from this and the previous episode. So far we haven't really mentioned anything about the north of Mexico. The main civilizations have all been based in southern or central Mexico, and furthermore, none of these seem to have advanced very far north. There are a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, the area is geographically very unappealing. It is largely arid desert, making it impossible to grow enough food to feed a large population. The second reason is that it was home to a number of fearsome tribes who would raid each other as well as the settled people to the south. The Aztecs, and later the Spanish, would use the word Chichimec to describe these people. The Chichimec were not an ethnic group, however. Chichimec is an umbrella term, a bit like our word barbarian. The city people of the south use it to describe the uncivilized and dangerous tribes of the north. 
The Chichimec then were made up of many different groups of people, and they all had different linguistic and ethnic backgrounds. Many were in no way related to each other, they just shared a similar lifestyle. These people did not have the inclination to settle down and start building cities. It simply wasn't a viable option, thanks to the landscape and climate they inhabited. Instead, living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle was the best adaptation they could make to their hostile climate. There is some debate about where exactly the Chichimec groups end. Some argue that the label should be applied to all those who live in the north of Mexico. Others think it describes those who lived in a small area just north of Mexico City. Even if you agree with the smaller definition, the whole of the north of Mexico was inhabited by tribes who lived in this way. If greatness is defined by massive cities and great architecture, then no great civilizations emerged in the north of Mexico. Some of these tribes, however, were about to shake things up in Mesoamerica. Several decided to go wandering southwards in search of more hospitable climes. One of them stumbled into the Valley of Mexico and found the ruins of Teotihuacan. They decided to settle here and found a new civilization. It's this civilization that will be the subject of the next two episodes. These people were the Aztecs. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.